I am quickly becoming a fan of Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker. He is refusing to cave in to Biden's demands that funding for Israel be dependent and be tied into funding for Ukraine. Johnson says he's not going to budge. He's pushing a bill to fund Israel exclusively. And Biden has threatened to veto the bill. Now, here's my question. Would Kevin McCarthy have done this? Would Kevin McCarthy have said, listen, Mr. President, you want to fund Israel? Fine. You want to fund Ukraine? No. And you want to fund them both together? No, I'm going to give you a bill to fund exclusively Israel and defy your demands. And I don't think McCarthy would have had the courage to do that. But now a caller has made the point. Caller said, listen, is Mike Johnson really being fair? He's politicizing this because Mike Johnson is trying. Where's he going to get the money from for Israel? He's taking the money away from the IRS. And a caller says, that's not right. That's not a good thing to do. Now, none of us could really be too upset with taking money away from the IRS. But I will explain all of that coming up. Plus, as promised, we will do a deep dive into how Hamas was able to completely fool the Israeli government, lure them into believing that they basically were not interested in terrorism anymore and just wanted money and that that Israel could basically buy them off. It's shocking. Now, I should mention, a caller pointed this out. I was going to mention this last time. It is all biad Hashem. It is all biad Kaddish Baruch Hu. So from a Hashkafa standpoint, uh, everything that happens is the Ratzon Hashem. Obviously, that's it's biad Hashem, and we have to have emunah and bitachin. And even when things happen that are difficult to understand and that are painful and that are dark, everything called the Avrachman al Tav Avad, and it's certainly biad Hashem. But with that having been said, usually, not always, but often, things like this happen in a Tevedika Eifin, in a Tevedika way, right? So when Hakadosh Baruch Hu does things. Of course, he's controlling, you know, we're like puppets and marionettes, and the Kaddish Baruch Hu, of course, is controlling everything that goes on. However, very often, when you look, you see that things transpired in a way that, at least on the surface, there are some explanations. And there are things, even though, again, it doesn't take away from the fact that, of course, Kaddish Baruch Hu is in control. You know, we, we, we kind of have to live on two different levels, so to speak, you know, two different prisms. So I want to make that very, very clear. Welcome to the Yaakov M. Show on VIN News, Yeshiva International, Nucky Radio, and other podcasting platforms. Send us an email, josh at vinnews.com, josh at vinnews.com. Send me an email about anything, and you can criticize, you can tell us how much you like the show, don't like the show, whatever's on your mind, or just you know, give me your thoughts or tell me a joke or share something exciting about your life. We do pretty much read them all, try to respond. All right, UBI, Universal Basic Income. There's a new article uh, in Business Insider. The headline is overwhelming evidence that universal basic income is working. The evidence is overwhelming. UBI, universal basic income is working. And as soon as I read the headline and I'm clicking and I'm saying to myself, I know where this is going. I know where, what, what is their proof? They have proof beyond doubt. We have it now that universal basic income, giving out free money, socialism, it works. It really works. And I'm saying to myself, what is their proof? Is there proof perhaps because they give people money and people go and buy stuff? They give people money and they buy cars and they buy fancy things and they use the money to make themselves uh, own more things? They're, they're more materialistic? They're, 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 their lives are improved because they have money and they used to not have money? Uh, the, the, what's the proof? Or maybe the proof is that overall this is a good economic policy to take money from people who are hardworking earners and give the money to lazy people and people who refuse to work or who don't work or who can't work or whatever, whatever the situation is. Redistribution of wealth, right? So as soon as I read it, I know already it's the same story every time. We know this works because, look, we gave people money and they bought things. They bought cars. They bought other things. So obviously this is a great idea. 
All right, so listen to this. Here's a quote. In the spring of 2022, Tadrika Lewis finally bought a car that started every time she tried and no longer left her stranded. Her 2020 Nissan Rogue was essential to her new job as a peer support specialist, someone who helps people in mental health crises, and she needed a good, reliable car. It was essential to her new life outside of prison, where she spent six years and four months for uh, for giving out fraudulent checks. So she she was a uh, she was a forger. She literally spent six years in jail for forging checks for check fraud. And she needed money and she needed the Nissan Rogue to start her new life, to start fresh. So they gave her free money and it worked. It was a car that she could not afford, but she was selected for Durham, North Carolina's guaranteed income pilot program. So she had $600 extra as a monthly stipend. Unbelievable. So here's what they're saying. They're saying that look at this woman. She came out of jail where she served for six years and she needed a car because she has a very important job, like the ex-convict. So, and and then this money saved her life. Jackpot. She hit the jackpot. She was in a UBI program, enrolled in the UBI program. So she got free money that she didn't deserve because she came out of jail and should just work and earn her money and earn her car. So here's the article again. In the past few years, aided by the pandemic, centuries of theory have at last been put to the test. The theory is about how giving out free money supposedly is a good thing and uh, aided by the pandemic. So there you go. They have their crisis. So... Everything they need now. They're, they're, they have their pretext. Quote, a few dozen cities across the country have begun basic income programs. The early results have been overwhelmingly positive. In Denver, more than 800 of the most vulnerable residents got monthly stipends up to $1,000. The, so, the program has reduced homelessness, increased employment, bolstered the mental health outcomes of participants. Similar in Stockton, California, the unemployment rate among 125 participants was nearly cut in half. Researchers at U of Penn studying the program concluded it would have pro- it could have profound positive impacts on local public health in city after city. Old, young, single parents, ex-convicts, universal basic income has improved health outcomes, raised employment, and bolstered child care opportunities, etc. Uh, and uh, recipients have had consistently better outcomes than control groups. Now you're going to say to me, you're going to say, "Well, listen, they're saying that it, it it improves employment. They're saying that there's more employment now because they're giving out money, so that gives people um, that somehow." makes people work more and they actually get free money and that makes them get jobs and that makes them actually be more employed not less employed i'm not believing it until i see it let's see in stockton california the unemployment rate dropped by nearly 50 percent among people who received universal basic income maybe maybe that's just temporary who knows how they're studying this stuff i don't believe it for a second but even if so it's short term giving out free money is never the answer but look that's that, that that's just not the issue the issue is not whether it's helping employment not employment. that's not the issue the issue is you're taking tax dollars the only way that this could work is socialism where you're taking the money from the working people and the people who earn it and you're giving the money to people who don't deserve it because what do they do to deserve it nothing so and they're never they're never proving that that it's good for the people who are giving the money this is my problem is it's always about oh look it's working why because the people getting the money their lives are improved what about the people giving out the money you're forcing them to share their money that they worked so hard to earn because the other guy is down on his luck. It's pure socialism. According to researcher Anna Jefferson, guaranteed income, which she calls unrestricted cash transfers. Don't you love that? Unrestricted cash transfers. When you steal money from somebody and give it to somebody else, that's also an unrestricted cash transfer. Impact recipients' lives almost immediately. I got to love this. She did an analysis which shows that cash can improve people's financial stress and mental health remarkably and quickly. 
And there's more data now. The evidence overwhelming. So it's unbelievable. So here's what they have. What's the data? The data is, wow, you start giving them money, and right away, they're less stressed. Right away, they're less depressed. Right away, they don't have financial stress. Of course not, because you gave them money. You could say the same thing about shoplifting. It overwhelmingly improves people's lives. People are healthier, they're happier, they're less depressed, because stealing things improves your life. We finally have proof. It is official. Stealing money will make you happy, so it must be a good thing. We're going to start a new program, UBT, Universal Basic Theft. That's what they're saying, because the problem I have with UBI, maybe it reduces unemployment, maybe not. I'm highly skeptical. I think when you give people free stuff, you're encouraging them to take more free things, and you're encouraging them not to work. So I'm not buying it. Are there a few exceptions, rare exceptions, where somebody gets money and just to kind of prop them up, and then they're going to actually build a better lives? Yeah, but I think it's rare. It's short-lived. Short-lived. It's not going to It's not gonna last. I'm sorry. You give out people $1,000 for free for the next two, three years, it's not going to encourage them to work harder for the most part. But that's not my issue. My issue is how do you get this money? Where does the money come from? In order for the study to work, you have to look at all the people who you're stealing the money from because that's what this is. I understand it. Call it a tax, but it's stealing. And I understand these little pilot programs, they're just getting a grant or something. But but somehow, in order for this to work, you're taking money from somebody who worked to earn that money. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Not to mention, I don't think it's working for the recipient very well either. So the data has to include that. The data of, wow, look how, look, they spent the money. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's worthless. It's ridiculous. Um, but they never bothered to explain the other side. That's what this is. It's deception. It's gaslighting. It's just a disgrace. All right. So let's get to Biden and let's get to Mike Johnson and this bill to fund Israel, to give funding to Israel. And there's a standoff now. There's going to be a whole fight because Biden says, I only want a bill that includes funding for Ukraine and funding for Israel and funding for Hamas, as we'll get to. And Mike Johnson says, no, 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 no. We don't connect those two things. We fund Israel first. That's the urgent matter. That's what that that that's what the, the money where the money is needed the most and the fastest. And uh, don't politicize it and tie it into Ukraine funding. So but before we get to that, I just have to mention, in case I haven't been abundantly clear, President Biden is 100% culpable in the Hamas terror attack. And I, we kind of like keep emphasizing this. I'm so tired of hearing how wonderful, magnanimous, gracious Biden is to Israel. Number one, he's sitting there pressuring. He's pressuring them. Now he says he wants a pause. He wants there to actually be a pause in the fighting. So he's basically pushing a ceasefire. That's new. That just broke. And uh, Biden, he's uh, he's pressuring them to allow um, humanitarian aid into Gaza. And that, of course, is only going to help Hamas. And I understand that Biden, he's been relatively supportive of Israel, but let's not act like the man is some kind of angel. So he's culpable. His policies directly funded Hamas through Iran. Why did this happen now? Why did this attack happen now? Did not happen four years under Trump. And so many things are going on that did not happen under Trump because they timed it perfectly. They were reeling after Trump. Trump defunded Iran. He imposed massive sanctions. Iran's currency plummeted. Remember, they didn't have basic food, basic supplies, basic medicines, bread. And Trump defunded the Palestinians. Remember, he made peace, the Abraham Accords, Accords between Israel and so many countries. And uh, he took uh, took all the money away from the Palestinians. He assassinated Qasem Soleimani. So Trump literally crushed Iran. And by extension, he crushed Hamas and Hezbollah. And they were literally afraid to mess with Trump because they knew anytime they messed with Trump, unlike Biden, who does these little token attacks on unmanned facilities that nobody even notices, Trump, he really, really crushed Iran, and they were terrified, and he threatened to do even more, and they knew that he meant it. Biden lifted the sanctions. Biden gave Iran 
$6 billion. He gave hundreds of millions to the Palestinians. Biden is weak. So this was the ideal time to strike. Hamas played the long game. They waited out Trump. You know, I kind of fell for it myself. I didn't think that would happen. But they waited, they waited out, they knew sooner or later somebody like Biden's gonna be gonna take office and that is their chance to pounce. They had, it took them a while to recoup. You got now China. China is, is also funding Iran and Hamas. China just deleted Israel off their official map, if you notice that. And by the way, it's not just that Biden was complicit in the past. It goes further. Biden's complicit right now. I heard somebody make this point. It's a great point. Qatar is sheltering the heads of Hamas. Qatar is sheltering Ismail Hania and Khalid Meshal, the two heads of Hamas, the people who are literally choreographing this whole this this whole war and the and these attacks. And what should Biden be doing? He should be pressuring Qatar. The U.S. has a relationship with Qatar. Qatar is aiding and abetting. They are literally sheltering these two these two heads of Hamas, these two evil monsters. Biden should pressure Qatar. He should there should be sanctions against Qatar because they're a state sponsor of terror. So this was actually our worst nightmare when Biden took office. Hamas, by the way, has, there are a thousand Americans trapped in Gaza right now. And Biden's doing virtually nothing to get them released and to pressure Hamas and to pressure Qatar. I understand he's verbally saying the right things. You know, like a call, there's a, there's a listener who keeps uh, pointing out to me, you know, Biden keep Biden has Iran terrified because what does he keep saying? He keeps saying, don't, 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 right? What did he say? He said, I told them, don't, 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 don't. That's what he told them. So Iran's shaking in their boots. But, you know, if you, if you just say two don't, if you just say don't twice, don't, don't, well, they won't take you seriously. But Biden, that third don't, you know how effective that is? I'm being facetious here. But it, don't, don't, don't. Oh, but guys, Biden said don't three times. We better not do anything here because we're shaking. This is very, very scary. So that's where that that's the backdrop here is I want to be very, very clear that this is our worst nightmare. The fact that Biden, everything that we have been afraid of has come to fruition because Biden has done so much to prop up Hamas and prop up these terror groups. Now, with that backdrop, so now you have Biden with his first showdown with the new speaker because Speaker Mike Johnson, he rejected Biden's request for one hundred and six billion dollars, which would have included money. I'll tell you what that money would have gone for, mainly Israel and Ukraine, but also for Hamas. But Johnson says, no, 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 no. We are funding Israel. Here's what he said on Fox News. Quote, there are lots of things going on around the world we have to address. But right now, what's happening in Israel takes immediate attention. And I think we've got to separate that and get it through. And I believe there'll be bipartisan support. Now, a caller has an issue as follows. Johnson wants to fund $14.3 billion, which is what Biden asked for for Israel. But he wants to cut the money. Fourteen. Where's he going to find that $14.3 billion? He wants to cut it from the IRS because, remember, Congress is giving, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, which increases inflation, but they call it the Inflation Reduction Act, um, that actually was money is earmarked toward the IRS. Johnson says, no, 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 we're going to take it from the IRS and we're going to give it to Israel. So here's what the caller said. The caller said, and Biden says, no, I'm going to veto it. And uh, and the Democrats are all upset because you can't take the money from the IRS. Of course, Democrats, they love collecting taxes. Republicans say, I don't want to collect taxes. Let people keep their tax money and then and just cut spending. And uh, the Democrats know they're desperate for the IRS to have all these new employees and all these new audits. So they want the money. But here's so here's what the caller said. The caller said, listen, Mike Johnson's politicizing this thing. And 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 I, I hear what the caller's saying, but I want to rebut because this is very, very important, very fundamental. Uh, the caller says, listen, you should just give the money to Israel cleanly. Give the money to Israel, $14.3 billion. Now, where are you going to get it from? The caller didn't say, but he said... 
Listen, we're, we give so much money. There are so many hundreds of billions of dollars that are being given in foreign aid to look, look at Ukraine, look at all these countries. We don't always take it. Where do we take it from? We don't always take it from some other agency. So why are you taking the money from the IRS? Just funded, just a straight up bill to fund Israel. Why are the Republicans, they're saying the, Johnson's politicizing this by tying it into the IRS. He, if he wants to give money, to, and, and then Biden saying, I'm going to veto it because we can't take the money. The IRS needs that money. It was earmarked. And the caller says, listen, Johnson's politicizing this. Just send the money straight up to Israel. Don't give Biden an excuse to be able to, uh, what, what the caller calls a legitimate excuse to be able to veto it because the IRS needs that money. Just send different money to Israel. Where are we going to get the money? We don't know. But by tying it into the IRS, Johnson's the one who's politicizing it. And uh, so a couple of things here. Number one, the caller says, therefore, Biden is correct uh, to veto this. Now, number one. Is it true that if a Republican ties it into the IRS, is that technically politicizing it? I'm willing to say that that's true. It happens to be I'm warming up here to Mike Johnson very quickly, and I think he's doing a lot of good things. But I'll give you that. I'll say, listen, if you want to tell me uh, we give so much funding, so many countries, why on earth are you tying this into the IRS? You're almost begging Biden to veto it. So you're like defying him. You're trying to create. So you're making sort of playing politics with money that should just go to Israel straight up. No questions. There's no strings attached. Fine. Fair point. But and, and and that's fine. But Biden is clearly politicizing it also because Biden should say, listen, you fund Israel. I'll sign the bill. Where do I sign? And I'm not looking at where the money's coming from. That's politicizing it. If you care about Israel so much, you say, listen, the, the, you know, the Republicans are making a mistake. here. They shouldn't tie it into the IRS, but I got to get that money there. That's what's important. So let's sign the bill, even though I don't agree with every single aspect of it. That's what Biden should say. So Biden just is guilty. That's point number one. Point number two is this. I can't stand all the spending, okay? You say, well, they do this all the time. They're spending so many billions anyway. I don't like that. That that attitude becomes self-fulfilling because I always hear that. It's like, well, why can't we spend on this? Why can't we spend on that? You know, this program's important. That program's important. I'm not talking about the border wall, but I'm talking about all the nonsense, silly spending programs, all the Medicare and the Medicaid and the Social Security and, and, and everything else, and they keep wanting to increase it, and it's like... Enough is enough. Like, when do you stop spending? Well, but, but we're spending four or five trillion dollars. You can't just spend 12 more trillion. That works with certain things, the border wall, defense, th- things that are like real necessities. But that argument is like, it never ends. It just makes, they keep spending. Well, we're just spending this, might as well spend that, spend this, might as well spend that. And it literally just, it's, it's self, that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So at some point you say, stop the spending. We need to cut spending other, pl- if you want to spend, it has to come somewhere else. So that's the Republican, usually the mindset, the conservative approaches. Listen, you want to spend? I'm all for spending, but you need to cut the money somewhere else in order to account for it. You, can, you just can't spend new money. It has to be money that's taken. That's how you do it with your budget in your house. Well, I need to do this expense. Where are you going to find the money? Well, I'll just figure it out. I'll just spend. Put on a credit card. Figure it out. No. A normal, disciplined person, fis- fiscally responsible, figures out where the money's going to come from. So you're going to say to me, yeah, but they never do that. They never did. Yeah, but Mike Johnson is brand new. Mike Johnson, he's a, he's a, he's a very, very diehard conservative. And he's brand new. This is his whole mantra is we're not going to spend a dime unless we find the money somewhere. First, we're not going to keep borrowing. We're not going to keep spending money we don't have. So it's literally his first bill that he's putting forth. You're saying, well, they do this. Yeah, if it was McCarthy, good point. That's my response to the caller is maybe you could argue that he's politicizing this because why are you tying it into the IRS? But the but, but Republicans were furious. McCarthy, he actually promised, he pledged that he would cut out that IRS funding as part of the debt ceiling hike. He was supposed to cut out the $87 billion that's being given to the IRS. How much? $87 million, $87 billion, whatever the number is. Um, because uh, that money is going to be used to hurt middle class people and audit and take our tax money away. So that was supposed to be slashed. And... He's basically, Mike Johnson is saying, listen, you want to fund Israel? I'm willing to fund Israel, but I don't believe in any funding. Now you say, but we do this all the time. Not Mike Johnson. 
He is somebody, he voted against Ukraine funding. He does not believe in spending money. He votes against these bills. He doesn't believe in spending if you cannot afford it. So I don't think it's really politicizing it when it's his first bill ever. And this is like, he wants to make this his like trademark thing is I'm not like Kevin McCarthy. I'm not like Paul Ryan, John Boehner. I do not spend if I can't find the money from somewhere else. That's my argument. You want to say he's politicizing it? Fine. It doesn't matter. It's Israel. Put politics aside. I'll give you that. I don't really care. But I, I think it's like not really... Totally fair. But as far as Biden goes, he's politicizing it. Number one, he would veto it anyway, even if it was given straight up, even if it wasn't IRS money. He'd veto it because he wants it to be tied to Ukraine. And he's the one politicizing this whole Israel war to begin with because he's saying, listen, I want to fund Israel and Ukraine at the same time. I want them to be. And and they're so, as we've discussed in the past, it's so unfair for so many reasons. Number one, Ukraine, we're going to get into this soon. Ukraine, they're so corrupt. They're literally hoarding the money, wasting the money. The generals are taking the money for themselves. That money is a total waste. That war is going to go on forever. That you cannot compare. It's not genocide. It's over land. It's over territory. Ukraine could give in, give Russia some land, and they would solve the problem tomorrow for the most part. Yeah, they have to give them some land. That's not the same as survival. It's not terrorism. There's just so many differences. You want to fund Ukraine? Have that conversation. I don't believe in it, but go for it. Have the conversation. But to tie it into Israel, that's despicable. That is disgraceful that Biden's tying it in. And, and, and you know why he's doing it? Because he was in a real bind because the Democrats are desperate to fund Ukraine, whatever silly reasons they have. And they couldn't do it anymore. The Republicans were saying, no chance, never. We're not funding Ukraine. We've wasted $80 billion. That money's going into Zelensky and the general's pockets, and it's not even helping. And Putin's stronger than ever and richer than ever. We're done. This money's a waste. So they, and now this was like the jackpot for Biden that, oh, now we have Israel. So now we can just lump it all together. Oh, Israel, Ukraine, uh, Putin, Hamas, same thing, same threat, which is totally, which is a total lie. And like I said, in addition to that, so, so Biden would be, so he's politicizing it from the start and he would 100% veto it, even if it wasn't tied into the IRS. And like I said, he might as well um, just sign it anyway. If you're not politicizing it, despite the fact that it's IRS money, say, listen, this is what the Republicans gave me. We need to give Israel the money. Um, now, here's what's interesting is, let's see here. The, the White House put out a memo in response to Mike Johnson's plan. Uh, despite, despite strong bipartisan agreement that the U.S. must support Israel as it defends itself, after the worst terrorist attack in, his, in its history, House Republicans are engaging in a dangerous political stunt that for the first time in American history demands emergency national security funding be, be fully offset. <laughs> wow, the Republicans actually want to offset spending with other spending. That, the, unbelievable, dangerous political stunt. Not only that, cutting IRS funding will increase our deficit by actively helping the rich and big corporations cheat on their taxes, forcing more of the tax burden onto middle-class families. So they're trying to spin it as though it, it, actually the IRS money is hurting middle-class families because they're because they're actually going to audit people. They promised they would only audit rich people, but now they have reneged and they said they're going to audit virtually everybody. So it's not true. But either way, um, it, it, you know, they say that cutting the IRS funding is going to increase the deficit. And it's hard to believe, but that is what the Democrats are saying and the CBO said. The CBO is very often wrong. The CBO, they get it wrong all the time. But Mike Johnson, he like laughed and he literally said, he's like, wow, only Democrats could say that when you cut spending, that increases the deficit because he literally wants to cut spending. He wants to take the 14 billion out of IRS money and give it to Israel. So he's literally cutting less spending. What Biden wants to do would increase the deficit because Biden wants to do a $106 billion package. He's knocking down to 14.3 billion, Johnson, and he's saying we're going to get the money from funding that was already earmarked somewhere else. And he's the one increasing the uh, the deficit. You cannot make this stuff up. So now here's what's amazing, though, is Biden's proposal, uh, $106 billion, $61.4 billion will go to Ukraine, $14.3 billion to Israel. 
And then $9 million would go to humanitarian aid in Gaza. Where do you think that's going to end up? That's going to end up in the hands of Hamas. And even Republicans in the House and the Senate have said the same thing. But of course, Biden wants to uh, pander to what they're calling the Hamas caucus, to, 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 to the squad, to the leftists. All right, a government think tank says that the terms illegal immigration and the term jihadist is offensive. These are offensive terms, and we need to tone down language that we talk about when we talk about illegals and about terrorists. You can't make this stuff up. The Rand Corporation, which gets hundreds of millions of dollars in tax dollars from the federal government, is pushing the DHS, Homeland Security, to adopt what it's calling inclusive language. So the term illegal immigrant should be replaced by undocumented non-citizen. The term riot should be replaced by protest, unless, of course, it's talking about Trump and, and MAGA Republicans. The term looter is racially charged. They say the term looter and the term jihadist are racist terms and offensive terms. It's Orwellian. They want to brainwash us. They want to alter our speech. They literally want to, we see evil right before our eyes and they want to whitewash it and pretend like it's not happening. The report from the Rand Corporation says the DHS uses language that's insulting, demeaning, dehumanizing, embarrassing. And the report was based on interviews with 15 individuals under the jurisdiction of the DHS. Unbelievable. Um, Meanwhile, Mark Green, who's a Republican from Tennessee, the secretary, the, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee in the House, he said, quote, most Americans are fed up with the chaos and devastation caused by the crisis at the southern border and the rising crimes in their communities. Yet DHS's number one priority seems to be rewriting the dictionary. He says this is a ploy to hide Alejandro Mayorkas complete failure of leadership. Um, he says Mayorkas has implemented a reckless open borders agenda and uses taxpayer dollars to change our language to hide the consequences of his disastrous policies. James Comer has uncovered evidence that President Biden got $40,000 in money from China, $40,000, but it was money laundered uh, through a bunch of different bank accounts and through Biden family members, but it actually came from China funneled to Biden the cash got got from a Chinese company in 2017 to Joe Biden through a series of companies and Biden family members. Comer said $5 million was given by a Chinese-based company to Hudson West, West III. Out of that $5 million, $400,000 was sent to a company owned by Hunter Biden. Out of that money, follow the money here, the trail, $150,000 sent to Lion Hall Group, which is controlled by James Biden. And James took $50,000 and sent Joe Biden a personal check for $40,000. So unbelievable how the money gets funneled and funneled and funneled and spread, spread throughout, sprinkled throughout the whole Biden family. The Biden crime family ends up in the hands of Joe Biden, amazingly. And remember that check, $200,000 James Biden sent to Joe Biden the same day that he got some kind of payoff from a company that was in trouble that was trying to buy Joe Biden's influence, allegedly. But um, but no, that was just coincidence, that $200,000. It was a loan repayment. Um, a large migrant ca- caravan is on its way from southern Mexico to the United States. Here's what I find astonishing. I mean, they're, they're coming across the border in droves, but caravan organizers, they say 5,000 people are part of this group. But it's being escorted by civil protection officials and by ambulances. They literally have a government escort. You, you can't make this stuff up. Mexico, this caravan's making its way to Mexico, and of course it's going to break through and get into the United States, and they're going to spend years, these asylum seekers, before anybody notices that they have no right to asylum because they're leaving an air, an area, they're leaving a region that has poverty and political instability. They're basically admitting that, but that's not asylum. Asylum is they have to be persecuted. Their lives have to be in danger. 
the fact that they're impoverished and they come from a country which is a third world country, which is very poor, and you know there's always uh, new governments taking control in Colombia and wherever. That's not that does not qualify you to be granted asylum. But they're going to be allowed in, catch and release, and it's going to take years, and they're never going to show up for their asylum hearing, as we know. And they're getting government escorts through Mexico into the United States. And um, what's really really disturbing is that, and again, nobody even notices. It's not even like newsworthy anymore because ten, yeah, ten thousand illegals come across in a single day. But what's incredible is this: it's like an invasion. But um, there are terrorists coming across the border. There are people. There, there, there are tons of Muslims coming across the border. And remember, Hezbollah operates in Venezuela. Venezuela and Iran are very, very tight. You had 169 illegals busted, arrested this year, who were linked to terror, which means that thousands got in. If 169 get busted, that means there are thousands of potential terrorists coming across the border. And here's what's amazing: is Biden right now? He needs the Muslim vote very badly. You have to realize there are a bunch of cities that Biden needs to win in 2024, Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta. These are key swing states, and these were crucial to him in 2020. So now Muslims are alienating him because he refuses to support Hamas. So Biden right now, this is very, very, very disturbing, everything that's going on. All right, so Time magazine published a piece about corruption in Ukraine. And remember, Zelensky was supposed to be weeding out corruption. Well, get ready for this shock. That did not happen. And the whole thing was a dog and pony show anyway, because Zelensky was just a, it was just a sham. It was a hoax because he wanted to try to lobby for more money from the U.S. And the Republicans said no, because it, the money's getting totally pocketed by the military, the generals. So here's what happened. This Time magazine the article, the article is written by somebody named Simon. I don't even know his last name. But let me quote you here from the article. Amid all the pressure to root out corruption, I assumed perhaps naively that officials in Ukraine, and this is a very long article, but I'll just read you some excerpts because he really went deep over here, would think twice before taking a bribe or pocketing state funds. Um, but when I made this point to a top presidential advisor in early October, he asked me to turn off my audio recorder so he could speak more freely. Simon, you're mistaken, he said. People are stealing like there's no tomorrow. Do you hear that? This is Time magazine saying in Ukraine, quoting a top military leader, people are, uh, or his top presidential advisor, people are stealing like there's no tomorrow. And he said that even the firing of the defense minister didn't scare people because uh, the, t- the purge took too long to materialize. Zelensky was warned in February corruption had grown uh, rife inside the ministry, but he dithered for more than six months, giving his allies multiple chances to deal with the problems quietly or explain them away. By the time he acted ahead of these U.S. visit, it was too late. Um, Ukraine's Western allies were already aware of the scandal by then. Soldiers at the front had begun making jokes about Reznikov's eggs, which was a new metaphor for corruption. Because remember, they spent like more money on eggs imported from another country. They actually could have bought the eggs on a shelf of a Ukrainian supermarket far cheaper but instead, they used the money. And, of course, the reason they did it is because they were getting kickbacks for the money. So here, when I asked Zelensky about the problem, this is the article in Time, he acknowledged its gravity and the threat it poses to Ukraine's morale. Uh, fighting corruption, he said, is among his top priorities, etc. But some of the accusations have been hard to deny. In August, the Ukrainian news outlet um, published a damaging report about Zelensky's top advisor on economic and energy policy. The report revealed that Rostislav's, Rostislav Sherma... Um, a former executive in the energy industry has a brother who co-owns two solar energy companies with power plants in southern Ukraine. Even after the Russians occupied that part of the country, cutting it off from the Ukrainian power grid, the companies continued to receive state payments for producing electricity. So incredible. This company, they're not, it's not even producing electricity anymore, but it's a very close 
relative of a top Zelensky advisor, and they're still getting paid, and they're not doing anything for the for the country. The anti-corruption police responded to the publication by opening an embezzlement probe into Shermer and his brother, but Zelensky did not suspend his advisor. Instead, Shermer joined Zelensky's delegation to Washington, where I saw him glad handling senior lawmakers and officials from the Biden administration, whatever that means, glad handling. I guess he was hanging out with them. Soon after he returned to Kiev, I visited Shermer. The atmosphere inside the compound had changed. Sandbags had been removed from many windows, etc. Okay. When we sat down, Sherman told me the allegations against him were part of a political attack paid for by one of Zelensky's enemies. He says that uh, we have to explain that we're clean, but he basically says that it was made up and it was fabricated. And he spent half an hour trying to convince me of the gold rush that renewable energy would see after the war. Again, I'm quoting from this article. He said, perhaps, um, since there's so much corruption concerns, he said maybe Sherman should step aside while, they're, while he's being investigated for embezzlement, or not go with Zelensky to Washington. He responded with a shrug, if we do that tomorrow, everybody on the team would be targeted. Politics is back, and that's the problem. All right, so now let's get into Israel, and I just want to give one disclaimer over here. We are going to do a little bit of a deep analysis of a deep dive, so if that works for you, good. If not, of course, you can always you know turn it off. That's fine. Uh, at 3 a.m. on October 7th, the head of the Shin Bet, Ronan Barr, could not determine if what he was seeing was just another Hamas military exercise. Shin Bet officials spent hours monitoring Hamas activity in Gaza. It was unusually active for the middle of the night. Israeli intel had convinced themselves Hamas had no interest in going to war. So they assumed that it was just a nighttime exercise. And they were not listening to chatter on the handheld radios. By the way, this is all what I'm going to quote you now. Is The first piece is from the New York Times. Second piece is from the Washington Post. And they interviewed a bunch of people, listened to a bunch of recordings. They were not listening to chatter on the handheld radios of Hamas terrorists. Um, Unit 8200, which is Israel's, uh, like the NSA, the intel agency that eavesdrops, stopped eavesdropping on those networks a year earlier because they saw it as a waste of effort. As time passed by, Ronan Barr thought Hamas might attempt a small-scale assault, so he ordered a group of elite counterterrorism forces to deploy to Israel's southern border. According to three Israeli officials, until the start of the attack or close to it, nobody believed the situation was serious enough to wake up Netanyahu, um, within hours, the tequila troops, this high, this um, elite force was embroiled in a battle with thousands of Hamas gunmen. The most powerful military force in the Middle East had completely underestimated the magnitude of the attack um, and totally failed in its intel gathering efforts, mostly due to hubris and the mistaken assumption that Hamas was a threat that was contained. Again, I'm quoting the New York Times. Hamas gunmen had undergone extensive training virtually undetected for at least a year. The fighters had meticulous intel on Israel's military bases and the layouts of kibbutzim. Israeli officials totally misjudged the threat posed by Hamas for years. The official assessment since May of 2021 was Hamas had no interest in launching an attack from Gaza. Uh, Israeli intel assessed Hamas was trying to foment violence against Israelis in the West Bank, which is controlled by the PA. That belief by Netanyahu and top Israeli officials presented a grave threat to Israel. It diverted attention and resources away from Hamas. Pretty astonishing. Overall, arrogance amongst Israeli officials, again, I'm quoting, convinced that the country's military and technological superiority to Hamas would keep the terrorist group in check. But they were completely fooled. Uh, on July 24th, two senior generals arrived at the Knesset to deliver urgent warnings to Israeli lawmakers. Um, and there were a bunch of classified documents. They believed that uh, because of all the political turmoil in Israel, that Israel was distracted and that an attack was imminent. Se- separately, General Herzi Halevi, military's chief of staff, tried to deliver similar warnings to Netanyahu, but Netanyahu refused to meet him. The general's warnings were based in large on, part on a series of provocations on Israel's northern border. 
Israel believed, Israeli officials believed Hezbollah was leading the planning for coordinated attack against Israel, but not one that would prompt an all-out war. The officials' concerns grew through September. General Halevi went public with his concerns. Uh, Netanyahu's allies went on Israeli television, condemned General Halevi for sowing panic. Now, again, that was about Hezbollah, not about Hamas, but still, still relevant, I guess. In a series of meetings, Shin Bet gave similar warnings to senior Israeli officials. Israel knew Hamas was growing stronger over time, but they thought they could contain Hamas with human spies, sophisticated surveillance tools, which would deliver early warnings of an attack, and with border fortifications to deter a ground assault and the Iron Dome. But they strengthened Hamas. That's the problem, is Netanyahu basically came to see Hamas as a way to balance power against the PA. So Netanyahu actually propped up Hamas. They viewed Hamas as a regional threat, not a global terrorist organization like Hezbollah or ISIS. And they believed in the wall. They believed the wall would hermetically seal off Gaza because of its sensors and remote-controlled sight shooter systems, remote-controlled rifles, as well as cameras and other alert systems, which we've discussed in the past. But the problem is that there was no human presence there. Hamas's attack exposed the weakness of the technology. The, the Hamas used explosive drones that damaged the cellular antennas and the remote firing system that protected the fence. And to get around Israel's surveillance technology, Hamas fighters uh, enforced strict discipline. They, uh, they, they didn't discuss any of their activities on mobile phones because they didn't want to be eavesdropped on and spied on. So they pulled this off without detection. They also they divided their terrorists into small cells. Each one only. But basically, they kept this thing so hidden that even the people who were carrying out the attack didn't know. They just knew their specific mission, their training, but they didn't know the, the greater scale of the attack. So the rank and file had no idea what the scale would be. And that way, if they got caught, they could not spill what the operation would be because they didn't have the info themselves. They kept this extremely tight among the upper echelons of Hamas. Hamas says 35 drones took part in the opening strike, strike including an explosive-laden drone. Um, one soldier testified, quote, we started receiving messages. There was a raid on every reporting line. Uh, swarms of terrorists were coming in. The forces did not have time to come and stop it. There were swarms. We simply, we were simply told that our only choice was to take our feet and flee for our lives. And um, soldiers who survived testified the Hamas's training was so precise, precise they damaged a row of cameras and communication systems. So all of our screens turned off in almost the exact same second. Basically, they were totally blind. Hamas literally shut down all the surveillance, all the communications. They shut down. We'll get to this shortly. They shut down the cell towers right away. They made it that the IDF basically had no eyes, no ears, and no ability to communicate. Hamas, this was so well-planned and so well-executed. Um, after the fighting, Israeli soldiers found handheld radios on the dead bodies of some Hamas terrorists, who the Times calls militants, of course. Those same radios, in Israeli intel officials decided a year ago were no longer worth monitoring. But here's the most terrifying part, is there's something called 8200. 8200 is an Israeli intel division that spies, gathers intelligence on its enemies. And... Uh, they actually, the, the, the Hamas, they had knowledge of like, apparently I'm told that because Israel was allowing these Gazan workers in, they gave these work permits, so Palestinians were coming in and being employed by military bases and by kibbutzim and other places, and they were spying. They were literally coming back and they were surveilling and getting a layout. So Hamas had this incredibly detailed knowledge. They were able to take over the military bases within minutes because they knew where they were. And they knew the layout. They knew the schematics. It's terrifying. But then this report I saw buried in the Washington Post, I didn't see this anywhere else, this 8200 installation, basically there's a bunker, which with a, which was a major intel hub. And Hamas may have very likely gained access. And they may have stolen these very sensitive classified secrets and documents from Israel, sent them on, to, sent them along to, to Iran. This is terrifying. 
According to footage reviewed by security analysts, a Hamas unit stored an, stormed an 8200 installation near Urim, about 10 miles inside Israeli territory, detonating an explosive at the entrance to an underground bunter, bunker that houses an expansive intel apparatus coordinating data from Israel, the Palestinian territories, and around the world. So this is like a huge intel hub with a lot of Israeli secrets. Hamas fighters battled with Israeli forces outside the bunker. It is unclear. This is according to Lieutenant Colonel Alon Eviatar, who's a former officer in Israel's 8200 elite intel unit. He said it's still unclear whether any of the militants survived the battle or managed to take espionage documents or equipment back to Gaza, which could be extremely valuable to Hamas and to Iran. So very, very shocking that they may have had access. I think that might have even been their main objective and everything else would just be diversionary. And they were just trying to access this because this could be incredibly damaging to Israel. Nobody's talking about this. All right. Washington Post when Hamas militants arrived in the tiny kibbutz of Kisufim. I know we're going long here. So again, feel free to shut it off. But this is so important. Listen, a mile from the border with the Gaza Strip, they attacked a carefully picked first target, communication towers on its outskirts. They made a beeline for the small fenced compound that housed the critical equipment, shooting at it using a ladder to scale a barbed wire fence to get inside. According to videos obtained by the Washington Post, Shai Usher, a member of the armed kibbutz security squad who battled Hamas that day, he said, quote, they knew exactly what they were doing and they struggled to communicate with each other and they were not able to call for backup. Quote, the phone network did not work. WhatsApp did not work. Everything was broken. A radio didn't work. All the channels of command were missing. They had a flawless battle plan that they executed flawlessly. For hours, volunteers like Usher were left to fend for themselves, outnumbered and outgunned. The soldiers who were supposed to protect them were blind to the unfolding disaster or they'd been killed or kidnapped. In a simultaneous wave of attacks on at least seven military posts across the border, Hamas sought to systematically disable key detection, communications and warning systems using snipers and commercial drones armed with explosives. The strategy allowed gunmen to advance deep into Israeli territory with little resistance and scrambled the military response. How did they have the intel? Because, like I said, Israelis hired spies from Gaza. They hired, they gave work permits to people from Gaza who acted as spies. Um, Eyal Hulata, head of National Security Council in Israel from 2021-2023, quote, there were not enough soldiers, there were not enough capabilities. Um, as we said, Netanyahu boasted about the smart wall, which ran the length of the Gaza border with Israel. But the problem is uh, Netanyahu, he oversaw the gradual withdrawal of troops from the south. He said, no, Hamas is contained, but forces left behind at the military and intel bases were trained to rely on sophisticated cameras and sensors to monitor infiltration. But in the early hours of October 7th, 50, at least 1,500 Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants, terrorists, broke through 30 points across the, the border barrier. They overran some bases so rapidly soldiers were either killed in their bunks or and... Um, and the terrorists were, were killed in their bunks. Terrorists took out communication networks so efficiently the area became a blind spot for the military. Uh, they coordinated and synced to get the maximum impact, Hulada said. The fact that we failed does not mean the IDF is not prepared to respond, he added. And uh, asked for comment by the Post, the Washington Post, the Israeli military said, quote, currently the IDF is focused on the ongoing war. We will get to questions of your kind later on. So pretty, pretty, it's just mind-numbing. It's just really not to be believed. Uh, and again, we know it started with air raid sirens, 6.30 a.m. They had rocket fire from Gaza, which was a regular occurrence, and nobody really noticed that. Nobody was too alarmed. Then came the iron missile defense, and that noise, that sound drowned out gunfire from snipers. Snipers shot at a ring, a string of cameras along the border. So um, they were taking out cameras, but nobody heard it because of the rocket fire in the Iron Dome and explosions. There were 100 remotely operated drones that took out watchtowers. Um and 
that was also drowned out, those explosions, by the rocket fire. So this thing was so brilliantly, flawlessly executed. The towers were outfitted with machine guns and cameras, both connected to the border's thermal imaging centers and to optical and radar detection systems. They relied on automation and on remote control, but once the systems were disabled, Hamas's special ops unit could breach the border wall with relative ease using bulldozers, trucks, and motorcycles. Then it was less than a mile to get to the first military base, and it was mostly unguarded. Frontline observation troops were caught off guard because they thought that cameras would give them the surveillance they needed. They thought they'd get an alert, but of course they did not get an alert. And even though some soldiers managed to kill, kill some Hamas terrorists with remote control guns, but hundreds more swooped in and took their place. And they killed soldiers in safe rooms, took hostages, ransacked weapons facilities, loaded up trucks, AK-47s, grenades, other weaponry. Only 8.06 a.m., an hour and a half after the beginning of the assault, did the IDF report a combined attack at 8.25. They declared a state of alert for war. And the one key mistake, they say, was placing key command centers so close to the border because basically Hamas was able to access, within a couple of minutes, able to access these very key command centers and cell towers, communication towers, camera centers, watchtowers, everything else. So, uh, and, and military bases, they had weapons, they had all sorts of, you know, obviously you have to have watchtowers and things on the border, I understand that. But they had facilities with very, very sophisticated weaponry and other valuable things. And um, right right there for Hamas to swoop in and take within a, within a few miles. The speed and the breadth of the assault points of deep planning by Hamas, 6.45 a.m. All right, we won't get into all the details over here. But Miri Eisen, former senior intel officer at the IDF, said their success was not techno- technological. It was preparation. They used military tactics to carry out a terror attack. So this is really, really you know, very, very astonishing, and they're going to learn a lot of lessons for this. And Netanyahu also, the under, the underground barrier that stopped Hamas's tunnel, that was also something that Netanyahu relied strongly on. Amir Tibon, a journalist, um, moved to Nahal Oz in 2014. When he began living there, combat units were stationed in every community, but in recent years, they were redeployed to the West Bank. And, quote, after that fancy underground obstacle Netanyahu was so proud of, it was decided that the forces weren't needed anymore. He's referring to the underground barrier that stopped Hamas's tunnels. And he said, if in every community on that dark day, October 7th, Shemin Yatzeret, Simchas Torah, and Eretz Yisrael, there were forces of 20 people, everything would have, lo- would have looked different. Okay, it's all beyond HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We have to keep that in mind, obviously, every minute of every day. But I think it is important to analyze what happened Alpi Teva? That's going to do it for today, and we will see you next time.